Welcome to Blackbird, episode number 73. My name is James, and today I am bringing to you a conversation I had with Peyton Garland. Peyton is a Christian author, a wife, and someone who struggles with obsessive-compulsive disorder. I wanted to kind of dig into all of those things, her family life, her mental health, along with her faith. So that's what this conversation is going to be all about. I think you're going to like it. I think you're really going to like it. She was a great and engaging conversationalist. Mercifully, we stayed away from politics in this conversation. I believe COVID came up a couple of times because, you know, how can you not talk about it right now? It sounds like she's probably on our team, but I wanted to steer clear of that and really just talk about these other topics that she really specializes in. So I think you'll find that a little bit refreshing. I know I did. And just enjoy this episode. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Peyton Garland. Peyton, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Absolutely excited to be here. All right. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself for the audience? Because I doubt most people in my audience anyway has heard of you. Yeah. So I'm Peyton Garland. My husband and I live in Colorado where we just love hiking with our two terrible but super cute dogs, (laughs) Alfie and Daisy. When we're not hiking and trying to get outdoors, I'm typically writing, I'm reading, I'm debating the existence of dinosaurs with my dad. I'm coffee shop hopping. So lots of fun stuff over in this little corner of the world. What's the what's the debate on the existence of dinosaurs? Oh, so my <laughs> so my father and I debate the existence. So I'm kind of the outlier here where I'm not sure that I believe they exist because I've taken archaeological classes. I've read a lot of books and interesting stuff where people stage the whole thing. Uh, My dad and I sit sit down and try to like calculate how old is the earth? Where would dinosaurs have fit into this? So we actually debate this frequently. I was, I I, I could have sworn you were going to tell me that your dad is a young earth creationist and uh, you're um, like a progressive or something like that. So it's really cool that the, that it was the opposite of (laughs) And so, yeah, there's a, there's actually a, a podcaster, you know, it, she would probably call herself a propaganda researcher. Um, other people might call her a conspiracy theorist. Her, she's been on my show before. Her name's Monica Perez, but she also questions the existence of dinosaurs. Um, would you, yes, do you like falling, okay. do you fall into that like conspiracy ish camp or like, do you just All keep right. an open mind, I guess, or? You know, I keep an open mind because it's just the fact that I am so human and so don't know everything. So like it could have totally been a thing and I just don't know it. But yes, I lean more towards the skeptical side of the dinosaurs. That's cool. What shape is the earth? I do think it's round. Okay. I am team <laughs> I am team round earth. <laughs> cool. Love that. Why don't you get into some backstory? So you have you've dealt with mental health issues. Do you mind do you mind talking about yeah. that a little bit? No, sure. So my whole life, I just thought I was a worrier. Mm. And that's kind of what I labeled it as because for me growing up, worrying almost seemed like you were a responsible human being. So to me, it was just, oh, well, Peyton's already, you know, she's she's oh. always worried about school. So that's a good thing. She's always worried about following the rules, checking the boxes, acing the tests. That's a good thing. That means she's a good girl. And so I did this for the first 25 years of my life. But what I realized after I got married 
when my husband went from being a sales rep for the Atlanta Falcons, making great money, really good job to quitting that to start flight school and to become a pilot, all of the things that were comfortable, all of the things that I could anticipate were turned on their head. And for the first time in my life, checking boxes and acing tests was not fulfilling at all. And the worrying was just beyond. It was spiraling. I was not doing well, not only mentally, but physically. I was losing weight. I couldn't gain weight. I wasn't sleeping. And so I ended up at a therapist's office and was diagnosed with OCD. So what's it like? What's it like living with OCD? Like, I mean, were there voices in your head or anything like that? Is it just like irresistible urges? Is it like you see it on TV? In some ways. So a lot of people go to Monk. That's kind of like their go-to as an example yeah. of somebody. My partner with and I OCD. actually just started watching Monk two nights ago. Like I'd never seen it before. Uh, but when I read that you had had experienced OCD, I was like, oh man, this is gonna be great. I can ask somebody, you know, how much like Monk she is. So Right. Yeah. So Monk kind of has one form of OCD. So what a lot of people think it is, is an obsession with symmetry. Like you color coordinate the clothes in your closet or you're very clean. Everything is very neat. I have gremlins living in my car. Like my car is disgusting. I do not color coordinate my clothes. Um, But symmetry OCD is just one of the four branches. And I actually suffer with the other three of them. So Monk is actually totally accurate for someone with symmetry OCD. Um, But there's also, there's harm OCD, there's contamination OCD, which is another well-known one where you're just afraid of germs, which COVID threw me for a loop. And then there's also, yeah, (laughs) yeah. So harm OCD, contamination OCD, and then what's called mental thoughts and taboo rituals, which uh, I guess a layman's term for it is religious OCD. So I suffer with all three of those and it's wild. Um, So what is harm OCD? Harm OCD is quite literally where you're afraid you're going to harm people. Uh, Just easy examples. I get very nervous driving. I'm afraid I've ran somebody off the road. If there's a pedestrian walking down the road, I will change lanes to go to the other side of the road. So there's no way I hit them. Mm. I have personally gotten in a car wreck, turning my car around to go and check and make sure I didn't run somebody off the road. Uh, Harm OCD can also take on a, a strange sexual I guess, flip where I'm afraid to change baby's diapers. I don't want to sexually harm them in any way. Mm. So I'm afraid to touch them. I don't like touching babies. Um, If I'm around someone of the opposite sex, I'm very hyper aware of my hands and my body and where I'm at and what I am and am not touching. So, you know, going back to your question of what it's like living with OCD, it's it's kind of this constant fight or flight in your head. How do you treat it now? So I, I fought medication for a very long time because I thought that was just defeat. I thought it would be ultimate failure if I, I had to take medicine. But I do therapy with a therapist in person, and that has done wonders. But I also take Zoloft every day. So I do a combination of treatments. Cool. Um, and you mentioned that you fought medication. I've noticed, um, at least in my experience, a lot of people like in the Christian community especially see mental health as somehow like a weakness or maybe even like demonic possession or something like that. Uh, and they would, they would be resistant to taking meds, not because they see it as a weakness, but also as they see it, like as not accepting some spiritual gift, I guess. Um, where do you, where do you land on that? How do you, uh, have you ever, have you ever thought that? And if so, how did you challenge it or how would you challenge it if you were in that camp, I guess? 
Yeah, I, I've never I've never felt that way particularly, but I am well, well versed in the Christian community that says, hey, if you have a mental health problem, it's because you're not praying enough. It's yeah. because your relationship with Jesus is not right. And that's just that's not really how it happened for me. I think I grew up in a very legalistic church where it was a lot of oh. rules and that was almost how you were supposed to please God. Grace is something I came to much later in my life. And so for me to take medicine, to me, that was like, I didn't check the box. And so now there's no way God thinks I am an honorable, worthy human being because I'm literally relying on something else to do a job I should be able to do. So for me, it wasn't that it wasn't that I, I didn't have enough of a prayer life. I just felt like I truly was not you know, meeting the bar and making the mark. And, mm. and that broke me for a long time. Um, you mentioned legalism. What? How does that manifest in in churches? What does legalism look like, as opposed to like just uh, you know live an upright and moral life or whatever? Yeah. So for me, at least, when I grew up in a legalistic church, it was where rules trumped God's character, mm-hmm. and I didn't see it for a very long time. I I'm a firm believer that yes, there is right and wrong. There's black and white. But I've also found so much of God in the gray spaces. And I, you know, I I wasn't allowed to wear pants to church as a woman. I wasn't allowed oh to boy. speak. Yeah. If if I had a question about how the church was using their money, or if I had a question about someone in a leadership role, I was not allowed to ask. Mm. I could get a man to ask for me, but I couldn't say anything because I was a woman. I could only use the King James version of the Bible. All other versions were, I, I don't even know what, what, no one actually said what they ever were. Right. Um, and, and no one really looked at the true history of the King James version and why it came about anyway. So it was just rule after rule after rule that was actually the opposite of God's character, which is grace and which is allowing women to step into places and speak truth and love on people well. Do you see anything good in those sorts of denominations or uh, church communities, I guess? I don't really, I don't see a good byproduct because I'm a byproduct of it and it did not help me at all. Sure. But I guess the way that I am supposed to give grace and the way that I see myself giving them grace is most people in these legalistic spaces truly think this is how they're supposed to honor God. Mm-hmm. Like a lot, a lot of times I noticed it wasn't necessarily control and it wasn't necessarily hate. It was just people truly believing that is what they were supposed to do. Yeah. And and so I'm, I'm gay and uh, thankfully I I didn't grow up in a church like that. I grew up in a more, so I grew up Catholic, but like in a sort of accepting family, I guess. And, you know, I mean, it was the nineties, so it was (laughs) the Catholic church was hardly, was hardly like the shame and guilt you know, none slapping you with the rulers that, that it was, you know, decades before. Sure. But uh, I do wonder, like, have you seen the backlash from people who do live, like as adults, maybe your childhood friends or something like that, who have, I guess, what we used to call alternative lifestyles? Mm-hmm. Have you seen that manifest itself in anybody? Or have you have you completely separated from the church and don't even have any adult friends? Yeah, I'm actually, you know, I don't have a lot of adult friends just because making adult friends is awkward and complicated. Um, Plus, you might might have to change a diaper. No. Right. No, exactly. (laughs) You just never know. I'm at the age where friends are having babies. I'm like, no, thank you. 
Uh, so I, my husband grew up Catholic. So my, my husband's from a Catholic family. I am from a Southern Baptist family. Uh-huh. And so when he and I got married, I, I told him, I said, I'm not, I'm not doing the Baptist thing. I'm just not, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not to hate on all Baptist churches by any means. Cause there are some wonderful people from there. I said, but it's, it's not for me. That's not where I feel God. That's not how I know God. And so we honestly are non-denominational. We go to a non-denominational church because it's, he wasn't, there were some things with the Catholic church he wasn't really in line with. And there were some things in the Southern Baptist that I was not in line with. And so we're non-denominational. And, and I will say that I was also a Christian school kid. So church, church was almost like seven days of the week for me. Lots of rules, lots of theology classes. And, and I have seen just from my graduating class, there are differences in people who grew up in the more legalistic churches and how they live their life yeah. today versus those who didn't. I have a friend who actually he's he's also been on the show. Uh, we're kind of colleagues in in the space that I that I operate in. He grew up in a really kind of legalistic sort of milieu like that when going to the schools. I think there was like 12 people in his in his graduating class, stuff like that. 13 and, in mine. So there yeah. you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he's uh he has kind of swung like all the way into sort of like the the complete countercultural stuff. Like it almost feels like counterculture for the sake of being countercultural. Um mm, which, yeah. you know, I mean, to me, if you want to be countercultural, that's great. But you know, it, it doesn't need to be performative, but I guess if I had grown up in a church where your Christianity was performative in and of itself, then I might want to swing the opposite direction and become a performative, you know, rebel or whatever. Have you seen that at all? Yes, <laughs> I have. And it's almost like what, what you said. I think it, it's been for a few of the people I graduated with and grew up with, it's been pure rebellion for the sake of rebellion. Uh-huh. And so it's been kind of an, an interesting journey to watch. I, I mainly just watch through Facebook. So who knows how much I actually know about them and their yeah. lives. But it, but it's still, there's still a point. And I guess I'm in my mid 20s. So I guess we're all still kind of figuring things out over mm-hmm. here. But you do have to decide what is true and why. And I think that's a balance that our culture, I think, kind of like what you said, swinging one way or the other. And there's just a lot of gray space that I'm not sure most of us know how to navigate well. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. So tell me about your book, Not So By Myself. Yeah, so (laughs) it came from a a very sucky season of life. So, you know, my husband ended up being a pilot and this was right before COVID hit. And so pilots were actually not in high demand because all the pilot roles were filled. It wasn't like they were begging for guys. So when he finished flight school, the only job that was available for him at an airport was in Indiana. And we were living in Georgia at the time. And we had just moved to a different part of Georgia for me to start a new job. So I don't know my neighbors. I don't know my coworkers. I am nowhere near my family. And the one person I knew is now up and gone states away. And so I spend about three or four months just by myself all the time. If I wasn't in the office, I was at home. And that's actually the season of life when I got diagnosed with OCD. It's the season when I I finally chose to embrace grace. And it's just a story of that revelation. So this is brand new. Like your your journey, the, the journey that you're chronicling right now just started like a year and a half ago or so. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. Um, how long did it take you to write the book? Oh, well, so, 
So I, I just, I started writing this book about loneliness three weeks before the pandemic. Had no oh. clue the whole world would be lonely in, a, in oh its own sense. So what happened is a publisher, um, I was pitching it like crazy. A publisher picked it up in July and they said, hey, this book is so relevant to everyone right now. Yeah. From a marketing standpoint, we've got to get it out there ASAP before COVID's over, which sounds terrible, but you know, for the sake of for the sake hey, of the sales. That's why they're the business people. <laughs> exactly. Um, but they said, Can you have the whole book to us in 30 days? So I essentially wrote the whole book in about a month. That's nuts. Can you kind of go through the maybe give us a close notes version of it? Sure. So I, I opened the book with just like a really kind of sad take on being by myself as my husband is away. Mm -hmm. And the next few chapters, I just start weaving lonely pieces of my life in and out and bring it back to present day. I talk about some of the church stuff I grew up in, the Christian school kids stuff I grew up in, lessons I've learned along the way. So it's everything from my faith to mental health to just ultimate loneliness and what to do in those seasons. What does loneliness look like to like, the average person. Cause you know, I mean, I can be alone, but not feel lonely and I can be surrounded by people and be completely lonely. So what is that? For me, just from my experience and talking with other people, I think true loneliness comes from a place of discontentness. I think it's when people are not content, there's something in their souls that they're just struggling through and, and they can't identify it. And it literally isolates them because you can be lonely in a crowd or in a room full of people. So I definitely think it's an internal thing for each person. And how do you challenge it? How do you get past it? Or do you have to find out what that discontent is first? I think a lot of people have to actually find out what it is. But for me, the only way I could figure out exactly where all of my loneliness was coming from was to put away the distractions because I think even things like mindless scrolling on social media, it's, it's just a way to numb your mind where you don't have to process anything. And so that was the first big step for me was just having to learn to sit with myself and my thoughts. I noticed you're not on Twitter, <laughs> which is which is probably for the best because uh, I, <laughs> I just this morning was thinking, I think I'm addicted to this damn site. I was just listening to a podcast the other day and I don't remember whose it was or who was who was the guest, but they were talking about how it's telling that on social networks like Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and so on, the things that you read is called a feed. It's not like, it's not like an article or a post or, I mean, sometimes they call them posts, but, but the, the entire thing is called a feed as if this is something that's supposed to satiate you. But since the feed never ends and really it just refreshes itself, like if you click on a tweet and then click back out to your <laughs> feed, it's completely different feed. And so you're always hungry and you're always eating and you're never, mm -hmm. ever, ever satiated. So do you feel like that might be related to loneliness? I guess it must be since you just gave the that sort of as an example. <laughs> no, yeah. And that's such a good point about like news feed. I had never thought of it that way. But no, that's beyond accurate for sure. Um, what's your What's your definition of grace? Oh, that's such a deep one. Let me think of a good way to sum it up. I think for me, grace is always extending love regardless of what could be reciprocated. Oh, that's it's, good. You know, just, you know, just knowing that you might not necessarily get anything in return, but that love is worth extending the grace. So it's like that. It's like agape love rather than... Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I like that. So do you think that like non-believers receive grace or display it? Or does it actually take a, like an active faith in 
some sort of God? That's a really good question too. I I honestly think that people who are non-believers absolutely have the ability to extend grace and and love because I've seen it. And and I mean, it's, you know, I think there's a verse in the Bible that says that everything that is pure and good is from above. And so I think that's totally something that even people who are non-believers can step into. And honestly, it's what should be keeping believers accountable. I mean, you know, you're you're clinging to the faith of a God who is good and just and loving, and you're supposed to be implementing that. And if someone doesn't believe the same way as you, but still believes in grace enough to extend it, then step up your own game, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And growing up, you know, in the Catholic Church, you have the concept of invincible ignorance, wherein the the person who has committed some, you know, sin or act of unfaith or what, I guess that's not a word, but whatever. <laughs> if if they're ignorant of the truth through no fault of their own, or even if, you know, I mean, even if they've rejected it, having heard it because they just weren't ready to receive it, then at least the church and hopefully God doesn't hold it against them. And it really that language, hold it against them is kind of legalistic, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think it is. And, and that's, that's one of the things for me that I've, I've had to kind of flip for myself is God, yes, God is judge, but God is also love and finding that balance of, of showing up to that perfect take of love and just, because for me, for the longest time, God was just holding, you know, a javelin, just waiting for me to do something wrong. And I, I was so busy trying to not do wrong that I never did anything right. So busy following rules that I wasn't loving. I wasn't giving grace. I wasn't serving. I wasn't investing in others. And it took me a long time to figure that out. So what do you, uh, what do you think about the role of community? You mentioned that, you know, you grew up in this legalistic church community. Now you're in a non-denominational church, which I assume is a little bit more accepting of, you know, different, different ways of doing things. Have you found a community? And what advice would you give to somebody who would like to build or join a community if they're feeling lonely right now? Well, I would tell people if if they're feeling that way, that then pursue community. Because if if you already know that you need people to stand in the gap for you as support and encouragement, then isolation is your worst enemy at this yeah. point. And and you know, I, I think oftentimes what we don't realize is is again, we go to social media, we go to TV screens to fill the gaps of community. And that mm. just sucks your soul even <laughs> even worse than not. And so I, you know, if you're a person of faith, a lot of churches have small groups, Bible studies, and it's really easy to kind of navigate those spaces to see where you click and where you could create community. But also if for people who are not, you know, attached to a church or don't have a faith, I really encourage those people um, to do what I do as well. Volunteer at soup kitchens, clothes closets, because it's not necessarily like a, a Bible study format where you're all sitting in a circle and chatting. But when you show up to places where people are already serving and loving on others, you get to be a part of that as well. And that's its own sort of community that's irreplaceable. So most of my audience is libertarian for better or worse. And <laughs> and libertarians are just notorious for being like these just radical individualists. And what that turns into is... Like, you know, I mean, they'll tell you, oh, we've got a party. We're not, we're not islands, but I mean, we've got a party that is constantly <laughs> fighting at each other. So I think right now, like during COVID and, and 
and, and I, I personally, and I think a lot of people are seeing this, we're, we're entering a sort of shift between a, a super materialistic era in human history. I mean, hundreds of years into something that's a little bit more spiritual and belief-based rather than observation-based. And you see it everywhere. You see it with people entering the church who you never thought would be entering the church. You see it in the trust the science groups. I mean, you know, I mean, trust the science or don't. I mean, the way that they, the way that that, that that's worded is religious in nature. It's not, it's, you know, mm-hmm. whether or not you believe, you know, Anthony Fauci or the other guy or whoever, <laughs> the, you know, that wording is, is very faith-based. Uh, yeah. And, and so I think we're right now, especially people in my circles are really struggling to to come to grips with this need for, for a tribe, for a community. In fact, someone told me, I was expressing my displeasure with the Libertarian Party, and he was like, well, just go join a book club, dude. You're like, you don't have to be political on everything. Just, you know, I mean, if you don't want to join a church, you don't want to be part of this party, then get, you go find something else. There's plenty of groups, discussions and uh, philosophy groups and all that stuff. So um, it's not tough to find a community. Have you ever been in the position to actually build a community rather than rather than finding one that's already been built? Yeah, and, and it was unintentional. So so okay. when I when I when I sent the book out into the world, you know, my publisher emailed me and said, Hey, by the way, you should just know this is officially at the printer. And I had that moment of I've just spilled my guts and all of my worst thoughts ever. And now everyone who has access to Amazon, which is almost everyone knows the worst parts about myself. Why did I do this? So, you know, I had that moment of, oh, crap. But what it turned into, I, mainly through social media, that's been the main avenue. But I've I've had so many people privately message me, hey, I read your book um, because of your story I actually went to therapy and I ended up getting diagnosed with OCD or anxiety. Oh or, hey, hey, because of your book, I knew I had OCD. I did not want to take medication, but because of you, I want you to know I started medication yesterday. And so there's been this trickle effect of of people finding community just in the space I show up in, Mm -hmm. mainly via Instagram or Facebook, where I'm just very honest about compulsions. I'm very honest about therapy sessions. I'm very honest about triggers and when I'm having bad days. And so that has become its own community, even digitally, even in the face of social media and all its terrors in 2021. And and I absolutely loved blindly walking into that and Mm. and getting to lead other people on their mental health journeys. Have you noticed what I just was talking about, um, the shift from material to spiritual in just the the society at large? What do you make of that? Have you been observing it? I I, I know this is not your milieu at all, but... uh, I'm really interested in it. So I'm going to ask anyway. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think if if you live in America and you lived here in 2020 between COVID, team Biden, team Trump, team yeah. vaccine, no vaccine, you can't ignore that people are, are completely, they're just, they're disgruntled. They're angry. They're throwing the kitchen sink. And, and I think the reason people are turning to more of a, a spiritual thing is, is the daily face-to-face, hand-to-machine, hand-to-phone, mm. it's not working. Like it's yeah. turning into pure hatred. And it's, I think 2020 and 2021 have brought that to such a high level where it's impossible to ignore that people are finally going, there's got to be something more than throwing shade at somebody on Facebook because of who they voted for. Like we got to get better at something. Man, you're not lying. 
Okay. <laughs> what? So, who have been some of your some of your inspirations, or your you know the, the people who you have learned the most from in your either mental health, faith, or whatever journey? Yeah, I have I have a few from different sectors. So, just growing up, my grandmother Bonnie and I dedicated the book to her. She was she was a Sunday school teacher. She was very quiet in the church, but I always loved how she could call people out for who and what they were. She kind of bucked the legalist, you know, structure on her own, but she was so full of grace and love. So Bonnie, my grandmother in my personal life has just been phenomenal. My therapist, her name is Karen. A lot of people laugh because of the Karen movement <laughs> these days, but my therapist, Karen has been great. Um, she did, she's done lots of brain spotting therapy with me, giving me lots of natural ways to work with medicine. And then I, I have two writers, uh, Hannah Brencher and Wendy Nunnery, who both talk big about mental health and the Christian faith and how the church needs to step up their game as far as approaching mental health and making sure that their congregations understand that priority. Cool. Yeah, there has been a huge emphasis on mental health in the last several years, you know, in secular communities and among Christians and even uh, like right. conservatives and people on the right, which uh, which I'm I'm really enjoying seeing because, you know, I, like I mentioned earlier, it has always been seen as a sign of weakness if you've dealt with mental health issues. And I think it's one of those things that people are just coming around to, uh, like a lot of the cultural changes as well that just, you know, why have we been fighting this for so long? It doesn't even make sense. You said that your therapist does brain spotting. Was that the word? Yes. Uh-huh. What is that? Oh, it's it's funky is what it is. So brain spotting is you you literally find a spot in the room where your brain feels more at ease. And so for me and my therapist's office, there's one wall that's nothing but a window. And so there's a lot of natural light coming through. And my eyes go to that every time because I love natural light. I love being outdoors. Mm. And, and you you set that as your gaze. So she's going to start asking you questions and you don't pull your gaze from that spot where your brain is actually relaxed. And you start, the first question she usually starts with is your biggest problem that day. If you had a trigger that week or an episode that week, you can't shake it. You can't figure out the root of it. She starts with really hard questions about where I think that's coming from, how it's making me feel, what part of my body do I feel at the heaviest in? And over the next 30 minutes, she continues to ask questions that create this funnel where you go from this trigger or this anxiety attack that you just cannot control, you can't get a grip on, and you've worked your way down to exactly what happened and why. And then you create a strategy around not how to avoid it because that's not going to happen, but how to better be prepared when you step into a situation that might open you up to an anxiety attack or a trigger. It's it's really neat. It feels very strange, but it works. Nice. Yeah, I did a, a sort of a PTSD therapy. I didn't have PTSD, but I had been through some trauma that, I mean, it was manifesting as symptoms of PTSD, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the name of the treatment was EMDR. It's like yes. eye, motion, uh-huh. eye motion desensitization, something, 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 where, yeah, the therapist would move a pen back and forth. <laughs> back and forth, back and forth. I was supposed to stare at it and then just kind of notice where my where my emotions were and how I was feeling. And it, yeah, like you said, it works. You can even you can even do EMDR on yourself by tapping on either side of your body. It does something. It does something with the the lobes of your brain or something like that. Very very cool and interesting stuff. So are yeah. there, are those similar things? I, I would assume. Yes, they're very close. Mm. Nice. 
Well, what else? So what are some, what are some like takeaways that you'd like for people to, to come from listening to you? Ah, you know, anytime someone asks this, I, I get real nervous because I'm like, these are my words. I'm no MLK junior. Like I, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to be changing the world too drastically over here. But something I always come back to when people ask if I could give one piece of advice, it would be to when you to give grace. And then get grace. And, and what I mean by that is give grace and love to other people. But at some point, that's going to require you to give grace to yourself as well. You've got to get it back because you can only extend love and grace if you were in a healthy place with yourself. So give grace, get grace. How can someone open themselves up to receiving grace so that they're not, so that they're not blocking it? Yeah, I think it's a hard stance against perfectionism. I struggle with that. It, it's a space where you have to be honest enough with yourself to to honestly know you're not perfect because you know that, but to also know that you're worth showing up for every day. Like you've got to show up for yourself each day. That doesn't mean you just let whatever comes come. That doesn't mean you don't have goals and that you don't have a, a code of ethics to live by, but you yourself are worth showing up for regardless of how many boxes you check that day. Okay, great. How has so I'm assuming that the perfectionism kind of manifests with the OCD, is that is that right, or are they two? Oh yeah, times? they're they're a lovely tornado. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, well, I mean, and you were you were forced into completing a book in thirty days, so I would assume that that took a lot of fighting against perfectionism. What? How else has perfectionism haunted you in your life? Mainly in my marriage. Now, I think that's the most present oh. thing because you know, for for me my husband's job is low-key what triggered my worst bout of OCD ever. And so it's like, I am, how do I tell my husband I have a mental health problem? This was not part of the deal before I do. Um, how do I now navigate this with another person constantly having to understand that I have compulsions, I have triggers. This is not something they signed up for. So my marriage has been probably the biggest space where I've had to just not only love myself, but believe that I'm worth it enough to accept his love. Yeah. Has he been, has he been accepting and supportive and all that? I assume. Oh, he's been a, he's been a champ. I, I remember calling him. He was actually in Indiana. This is when I got diagnosed and I called him kind of in tears. And I was like, I have OCD. And he said, Oh, thank the Lord. He said, I thought it was me. I thought you were just <laughs> angry with me. I thought you were always just coming in hot on me. He said, it's not me. It's a mental health disorder. He, he literally said, we can handle this good deal. Oh, so he's, he's been great. He, he's been a true champ. Does he talk with an accent that's that thick? Oh, his is worse than mine. Oh my God. Mine is, is actually, you, you mine on, is the better. A, <laughs> you put on kind of a thick accent when you did your, your impersonation of your husband. That's how I talk when I talk, when I talk like my mom. Oh, James, you're just, <laughs> she doesn't even really talk like that. It just, <laughs> it's just, it just, it's just the caricature. Yeah, exactly. Okay, great. Well, why don't we go ahead and, and start winding down? Why don't you tell people where they can find you and how they can find your book and interact with you and all that stuff? Yeah. So check out my book on Amazon. That's going to be the quickest way to get it. Just not so by myself, Peyton Garland. Or if you want a signed copy of the book, my website is peytongarland.me. So that's also where I do lots of blogging. I have some OCD merchandise, some t-shirts and quote cards that I've created in my little space. And then on social media, Peyton M. Garland author is where I keep up with a lot of writing things. And that's on Instagram and Facebook mostly, you said, right? Correct. But not Twitter. 
which I was looking not, for. Not, not Twitter. That space just wears me out. Good. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm seriously considering taking a very firm <laughs> break. Okay. Well, I really appreciate it, Peyton. And thank you so much for, for talking tonight. Absolutely. Had a blast. Thank you. Yeah. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks for checking out this episode of Blackbird. If you like what you heard today, be sure you're subscribed on your podcatcher of choice. You can find me anywhere by searching Blackbird with James Gentleman. Follow me on Twitter at JamesLJ. My DMs are always open, so if you have feedback, ideas, or have something interesting to say and would like to appear on Blackbird, just drop me a line there. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to all my interviews, plus plenty of bonus content, head over to blackbirdpodcast.com, toss me $7 a month or $70 a year, and I'll get you all set up. You can also find me on Odyssey, where I'm posting the video of my interviews. Just search for Blackbird there or click the link in the show notes. And finally, if you haven't already, please leave me a rating and a review over at iTunes. It really helps the show. Thanks again for listening to Blackbird, and until next time, live free. (laughs) 